morning, church. We gather today to worship on the day that marks the greatest evil, the greatest atrocity that we have ever committed as mankind. And yet we call it good, Good Friday. Why is that? It's because as John Calvin said, our salvation consists in the doctrine of the cross. And so today is a day for worship. Won't you worship with me as we read together Matthew 27 from verse 45 to 54. Let us still our hearts as we come to this passage. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come as your church to the cross, we come to the foot of the cross today. We would have you lift up our heads and help us fix our gaze upon our Savior who died for us. God, give us eyes to see, hearts to understand. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. While Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew records the mocking accusation that the witnesses who were there spoke against him in the verses just prior to this passage. In Matthew 27, 42 and 43, they said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. What now of your claims, Jesus, you who claimed a kingdom, a relationship, a special relationship to the Father, you claimed to be the Son of God. It was the basis for their trial. The Jews tried him for blasphemy, and he was tried before the court of Rome for treason. He said he was the Son of God. He said he was a king. His death must now surely mean he was a failure to be either. And on that day, 2,000 years ago, they looked upon a dying Jesus and they missed the truth that was right in front of them. They missed the meaning of the cross, the meaning of his death. We gaze upon the cross today and we must not make the same mistake that they made. If we fail to understand the cross, we fail to understand Christ and Christianity. We fail to understand and know who God is. Again, Calvin wrote this, in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. Last year, this time we were in John's gospel and so we approached the cross from his angle and I opted for another angle of the same event this year. Today and on Sunday, we're going to be in Matthew's gospel, and today we're going to see again the meaning of the death of Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't explain his theology of the cross using propositional language. So he doesn't, for example, say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:3, Christ died for our sins. He doesn't say like Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He doesn't say like John, he is the propitiation for our sins. Or like the author of Hebrews, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But in his narrative account of the events surrounding the cross, and the words spoken in response to those events, Matthew does give us a theology of the cross. These events are signs pointing to the meaning of the cross, the meaning of the death of God's Son. What we see happening in Matthew's account is God speaking louder than the accusers, speaking over Christ's enemies and those who mock. And so there are four signs, I believe, for us in this passage, four events, well, three events and one non-event that is also a sign, four things that God does to confound the mocking cry, how could he be our king, how could he be our God, he cannot even save himself. Number one, let's look at the sign of separation, the sign of separation in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. It's midday when the sun is at its highest. So Matthew is saying from noon until 3 p.m. When the sun is brightest, there is instead darkness everywhere. This is no eclipse. At the Passover, it was the time of the full moon. 
And no eclipse lasts that long. There's never darkness for that long. This is not a euphemism for the gloominess of a cloudy day. There's no talk here of sandstorms or anything like that. Matthew would be taken at face value. This is supernatural like the other events in this passage. God is speaking in the death of his son and we ought to listen. So what is it that the darkness says to us? Does creation mourn at the evil unfolding? As Matthew Henry said, the son never saw such wickedness as this before and therefore withdrew. And in darkness and in earthquakes, indeed, creation groans in earnest that echoes the mourning of a father. As Matthew is sharing this detail, I believe he has in mind the, the prophecy of Amos 8. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Darkness is a symbol of mourning. But more than that, in the prophets, when Amos is speaking and when the prophets are speaking of a day coming and they picture darkness, they're speaking of judgment. Darkness is a symbol of judgment. And here at that day's inauguration, we see darkness over the land as there was darkness and as a plague over Egypt in Exodus 10. It is judgment and mourning. But what truly reveals the meaning of the darkness is the word. The word that comes from within the darkness, that pierces the darkness. The word to match, or rather the word for which the darkness has waited Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary says, the light of the world opens his mouth. But unlike the moment of the creation of the world where he said, let there be light, here his voice joins the darkness as he echoes the cry of Psalm 22 verse 1. Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely it's the most shocking statement in all of Scripture. And these words are very important to Matthew. They're the only words he actually quotes Jesus saying verbatim. And he gives the Aramaic. He wants us to feel the anguish that Jesus felt. And yet as we read them, we ask, how? How? Can this be the Son forsaken of the Father? Indeed, there are attempts to explain away these words. Some have said, as I remember a friend explaining to me very many years ago, that he said when he's quoting Psalm 22 verse 1, he's not actually saying that he was really forsaken. He's reciting a messianic psalm that ends in victory, proving, in fact, the opposite but if that is true, then why doesn't Jesus quote the right part of the psalm? The end of the psalm, verse 28, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. That is certainly true, isn't it? Verse 30 to 31, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There will be cries later on. There will be words spoken later on that reflect other emotions, other sentiments. There will be a cry of victory, but at this moment in the darkness, he chooses this line for a reason. Jesus wasn't just reciting poetry. He was expressing the anguish of his soul. While others have said in his desperate hour, he only felt abandoned like we sometimes do in our trouble, that God had not really forsaken him. They sometimes cite R.T. Glover in his work, The Jesus of History, where he said, I have sometimes thought there never was an utterance that reveals more amazingly the distance between feeling and fact. Are we really to take his words as detached from reality, like ours are when we only feel abandoned by God? Now there must be mystery here, but we have already accepted that there are many things about our God who is beyond all comprehension that are mysterious to our finite minds. We do not suggest that there has been a, a break in the Godhead or a division in the Trinity, but we must hold Christ's words to be true and take them at face value. So Carson says in his commentary, it seems that in the working out of salvation for sinners, the hitherto unbroken communion between the Father and the Son was mysteriously broken. It is surely better to accept this, knowing that we don't understand it fully, than to attempt some rationalization of the saying so that it becomes more palatable to us. In the darkness, something was happening, more horrifying than any child of God is ever going to be able to comprehend or understand. The Son is forsaken of the Father. We must know the truth of it. We must feel the truth of it. This great ironic blessing that we love to to use at our benedictions, that is always at work in our experiences, in our life, in these moments, it did not work for him. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. We must feel the weight of the words we sing. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. The physical darkness that surrounds is nothing compared to the darkness that draws from our Lord this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the darkness he has described himself already in the Gospels when he speaks of hell itself, the outer darkness. What is going on in this darkness? The biblical writers put it in different ways. Isaiah 53, 5 to 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone we have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins on his, in his body on the tree. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It was a day of judgment, but not judgment against those who nailed him to the tree. This is the seriousness of our sin. The seriousness of God's love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If we don't, underst- we don't understand the cross, if we don't understand this. Behold the man upon a cross we sing. My sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. If you live this week in the reality of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. If you live in that reality, it's because he lived Psalm 22 for you. And we cannot know God if we do not know what our sin did to his son. We cannot really love either father or son if we don't know the truth that our sin has been washed away by the blood of the lamb. It's a sign of separation. Number two, we see the sign of submission. This next sign Matthew uses to explain the meaning of the cross is not so much revealing for what happened as for what did not happen. Verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Despite the loudness of his cry and the darkness Not everyone understood it. Some thought he was calling not to God, but to Elijah to come and rescue. Now, Elijah hadn't died in the usual way. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so he had become, uh, he had come to be viewed by some in this time as almost like Catholics have a, a patron saint, as somebody who would help the oppressed in their time of need. Let us wait and see, is Elijah coming for him? And in answer to the cry, what is telling is the silence. No rescue. Jesus alone on the cross. But then there had never been any thought of rescue or escape, had there? No attempt to avoid this fate. Never mind Elijah. The hosts of heaven would have come if he called. Eager as they watched to reverse this injustice. But his was not a cry for rescue. He bore all for the rescue of sinners. Jesus fulfilled the words he spoke to his disciples the night before. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, he loved his own who were in the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We sang very pertinent words A few minutes ago, see the king who made the sun, the one who made the moon and shining stars, let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. 
All the gospel writers make this fact clear. None of them use the usual words to describe dying when they speak of Jesus' death. Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. That word yield is used 142 times in the New Testament and only once in reference to death. The gospel writers are pointing out the the uniqueness of his death, the voluntariness of it. See, die is an unusual verb, isn't it? It's actually an action verb when it shouldn't be an action verb. When we die, we don't really do anything. It's something that happens to us. We are are died, so to speak. There's nobody alive unless you take your own life who is able to decide the moment of death. There are some who, in their suffering, in their desire to go and to to be with Jesus, maybe long for death, and yet God requires patience from them. There are others who have plans for many a year to come. They wish to see their children and their children grow up and to see grandchildren. And sometimes death comes early, they say, as a surprise. Jesus alone, we see in this passage, is sovereignly able to choose the moment of his death. Crucifixion would lead to asphyxiation. Eventually, the victim would be unable to breathe, be unable to, to lift his chest, to gain another breath. They would lose consciousness and die, or else the, the heart would rupture, or else they would lose too much blood and, and pass out, whatever it is. Jesus, however, here is able in his last moments to summon enough strength for a final cry, Matthew says. He has a cry of victory, we know from John. It is finished, it is done. Then he would hand his final breath to his father in submission as a gift. Abandonment is not the final word. We saw it even in his cry. Why have you forsaken me? Still he says, my God, my God, there is trust even there. And here there is trust at the end. Luke actually quotes him, father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. The crowds are mocking At the lack of deliverance, Jesus is trusting his soul care to the Father. He dies when he chooses. Augustine said he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Jesus himself had said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In love, in love he did it. Ephesians 1, Paul writes in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in love, Jesus went to the cross to purchase and to redeem us. And so we gather today in wonder, being able to say, are you able to say today that I am his? I belong to him. His blood has purchased my life. I am ransomed by him, and he is mine. Can you say, I'm not my own, and I will follow him? I confess there there are many days in, in service to Christ as a Christian where the road brings trial, and my eyes dart around for means of escape, 
My heart goes to complaining. I feel self-pity and I grow morose under sometimes the weight of my Christianity. I flee when I ought to stand. I duck and dive when I ought to count it all joy and see it as fellowship with him in his suffering. But while the sacrifice of Christ ought to lead us, as Paul says in Romans 12:1, to presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, a true understanding of the cross, A true exaltation in the Savior is knowing that where he went and what he did, he did alone. His death was unique and where he went, none of us could follow. He did what no one else could do. You know, every year on this day, there's a tradition in the Philippines whereby men reenact the crucifixion of Christ. They scourge themselves so that their flesh would resemble his flayed flesh flogged by Roman order. They carry crosses as people watch and someone dressed in Roman garb takes long stainless uh, steel nails and drives them into their hands. They are nailed to crosses. They're crucified and they hang there, a spectacle for many. They hang for a few minutes before being taken to a hospital. One man is famous for this in the country. He's done it for 33 years. 33 times he's been crucified. He sees it as a special calling. We don't know why. Maybe it's a misguided attempt to identify with Christ and with the sufferings of Christ. Maybe it's a, a special means of atoning for sins of the former year, the past year. Whatever it is, it misses the point, doesn't it? We cannot follow him there. We follow him afterwards, but we do not follow him there. Their sins, these men who reenact, their sins are not their own. Their actions are powerless to justify themselves before his court. Theirs is not his suffering. It is not the darkness of the sin of the world upon their shoulders. It is not the innocence of the lamb without blemish. The one righteous accounted guilty for the guilty. None of us can do that. And we think of of this as bizarre, don't we? Bizarre that people would do that to themselves. Maybe to unburden heavy hearts. And yet we do exactly the same thing. Maybe not as extreme. We have our own ways of currying favor and our own ways of buying merit before God, even here in Hillcrest. To understand his death, we must accept this truth that he walked that road alone for you and for me. It was the walk of the godly for the ungodly, something we could never do. Jesus gave up his spirit He breathed his last breath and the world thought, well, that's the end of that. The scorn and the derision left unanswered. But God still had a lot to say, didn't he? And we're going to come on Sunday and we're going to hear the final word of vindication, the resurrection of Christ. But even on this day, heaven showers down other signs, signs of victory and vindication. (coughs) Donald says, the justification of God outshouts the voice of scorn and confusion. The Father has not abandoned His righteous suffering Son. He, has give, he gives us an earth-shaking, tomb-breaking, curtain-tearing ceremony to celebrate. 
He unmistakably affirms that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. So number three, let's look at the sign of satisfaction in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom to show that it's another supernatural sign, a supernatural event. We have got a lot of the, the children's books from the, the media center here. I know I talk about them maybe too much, but one of them is called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And it points something out that I'd never seen before. I love the way it, it paints this scene. It points out that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it says sin has no place in God's wonderful garden, and they had to leave. You can't live with me anymore in my garden, says God. And angels were placed at the front of the garden like a big keep out sign that says to the world in its rebellion, and my children know this phrase very well, <coughs> because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Do you understand that to be true? Do you understand that there is no other way to the Father but through the Son? Later in God's grace, He makes a place where He would dwell among His people, the temple. And in the middle of the temple, there is, the book says, the most wonderful place on earth where God is and where there is nothing sad and nothing bad. But God commands His people to be, put a big curtain around His wonderful place. And that curtain has pictures on it of angels. Again, a big keep out sign, a reminder that is there for hundreds of years. It is wonderful to live with me, but because of your sin, you can't come in. And it stands for centuries until this day. And there comes the birth of a child, God in the flesh, to dwell with us. And the book says this, on the cross, Jesus took our sin all the bad things we do and all the sad things they cause. Jesus took them all from us and when he did something amazing, astonishing, astounding happened, the curtain tore. God has ripped up the keep out sign. God's wonderful place is open again because Jesus died. We can go in. If I had to summarize the, the whole point of the Bible in one line, it would be that. Because Jesus died, we can go in. Whereas Scripture repeats again and again and again, I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the great meaning that Matthew points to in the tearing of the temple curtain. It's a statement, someone has said, a statement of judgment and of salvation. It's all over and it's all open. It's all over. Everything the temple has represented is fulfilled in a place outside the city, a place of curse. The cross has fulfilled the ceremonies and the sacrifices so that it's all open. The way to the Father is open. The Father's wrath against our sin. If you are a child of God, fully satisfied in the Son, this is a sign of vindication, and so it is also a sign of invitation. As the author of Hebrews puts it to us, Hebrews 10, 19 and following, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, do you have confidence? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, <coughs> with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Is this your assurance here today? Are you assured of a father's love because you are trusting in the death of Christ and in that death alone? Stop relying on yourself. Stop thinking that it's going to all be okay when you meet him one day. Matthew is saying, if you haven't, confess your sin, throw yourself upon the mercy of God and run to his open arms. The sign of separation, the sign of submission, the sign of satisfaction, and finally, the sign of success. For this last sign, really, there's actually a whole bunch that's going on, isn't there? Where God is declaring the victory of his son. Look at Verse 51, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew's inclusion here, it's, it's unique to his account. No other gospel writer shares this detail of bodies coming out of tombs, and it raises so many questions for us, doesn't it? Who, who are these people? Who are the ones raised? These, are they Old Testament saints like David and Moses or New Testament saints like John the Baptist? Were they known by anyone or were they just they regular saints like you and me? How many is many, Matthew says? Is it 10? Is it a 100? How did they come out? Did they come out as they went in? in the state they were before they died, or did they come out in the height of their strength? These are all questions I wish we had answers to. Did they go on living like Lazarus did and, and die later on, or did they ascend with Jesus? What, what is going on? Matthew isn't worried about those things. He doesn't concern himself with our curiosity. He's making a point, one point, and that point is about Jesus. It's a point that's captured well in the, the title of a famous sermon written by John Owen. The title of the sermon is this, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Or as Augustine said, his death killed death. And while, his, while he dies, his enemies watch and they gloat in smug but ignorant triumph. And all the while he is springing a trap. He's springing a trap. Death takes the bait. It goes too far. It overreaches and it overplays its hand. You know, as a bee must die when it stings, right? So death has lost its sting now in the Lord of life and it will come out the loser. This is the anticipation that Matthew wants us to have in this account. This is the anticipation of Good Friday. We notice that the, the saints, it says, only rose after he rose because he is the first fruits. But why does Matthew share this detail now? He's saying something about the death of Christ, that there is also victory in that death, that death is conquered by his death. Do you believe the signs? Do you have the hope that Matthew wants you to have? It's pointing forward to Sunday, to the consummation that is coming. And do you see these signs and love the Son for what He did. 
As we close, I want to point out one thing. Matthew shows there's a, an outsider, a former outsider to the covenant, who sees everything that is happening. He's gazing upon the cross. He's gazing at what God says surrounding the cross. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God, a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. Do you agree to these things, to his statement, truly he was the Son of God? Do you trust that his cry in the darkness means that you will never ever be forsaken of the Father? Do you see his strength and love him for his loneliness on the cross? Love him for the fact that the sky was not filled with angels coming to the rescue? Do you hear his victory cry and see the veil torn? that invites your heart to, to draw near to the Father today? And do you know, even though your sin is bad, and it has caused bad things, do you know that His death holds no sway, that death holds no sway over your future, but that His death has rescued you and opened the way to forgiveness in the Father? If you don't, don't just leave here from this place Without reflection, please don't walk out the door and forget and look away and set your focus back onto the world. Lift your eyes to the cross today and love the Savior for what he's done. Let's pray. Jesus, we... We know that we, we can't comprehend what you went through at the cross. We know that it was way more than the physical. It was way more than the pain and the, the torture. We know spiritually that there, are, there were things going on that as your children, you have shielded us from forever. We thank you that you have shielded us from God's righteous anger against our sin. We confess our sin to you. Lord, we know. We know what it has done to your son. Pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in this knowledge of forgiveness, of bloodshed, of ransom, of the fact that we have been bought at a price. Lord, it is our joy to say that we belong to you, Jesus, that you are our King, that you are the Son of God. We see and believe, and we would follow you every day hereafter. Give us the strength, we pray. Amen.